I invite you to take your Bible and look at me in 1 Samuel chapter 15 this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 15 as we uh, continue to kind of look at the life of David. And I know if uh, you've been here the last couple of weeks, this is week three of our series. You may be saying, Pastor, we're in week three and we had not talked about David yet. And I know that we're, we're getting there, but we want to set the stage for what's going to uh, happen when David arrives on the scene, because that will obviously occupy the uh, bulk of our time as we move through this series looking at the life of King David, looking at how uh, the people who were following David were, were chasing a crown, they were searching for a king, and how we do that in our lives as well, just like the people of Israel were, was looking for that king, looking for someone to give them some sense of stability some sense of security, some significance. So we do that as well. Now, as we saw last week, Israel demanded a king. They said, we want a king like every other nation around us, like they have a king. And God gave them that which they demanded. You need to be careful about what you demand from God, because sometimes God will give you what you ask when it's not really exactly what He wants in your life. And He does that sometimes to teach us how we should rely upon him. And so they have a king, his name is Saul, and he starts off pretty well. Uh, people like him, he, he knows how to, to lead people at the outset. He's uh, kind of head and shoulders above everyone else. He's a great military mind. And in fact, he, he really starts off quite uh, from humble beginnings. When they go to look for him in 1 Samuel chapter 10 to anoint him as king, he's hiding because he doesn't want the attention. There's no pomp. There's no circumstance at his uh, anointing. He is, uh, in many ways, appears to be what the people are, are seeking. But everything begins to change in 1 Samuel 15 with Saul's life. The first king that they seek doesn't turn out so well. And the way that things began to happen was through his disobedience to God. And so today I want us to dissect his disobedience because I think in doing so we will see ours as well and we'll see how we make lousy kings or queens of our own lives. 1 Samuel chapter 15, let's begin in verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people of Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go, here's the command, go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now the Amalekites were perpetual enemies of Israel. We first see them back in Exodus when God's people come out of bondage and they're trying to go to this land God promised them and they are attacked when they're defenseless, they are attacked by the Amalekites. Now when that happened, God saw that and God did not forget that and all throughout the Old Testament up until we get to the time of Kings, for example, in the book of Deuteronomy or in the book of Joshua, Judges, you see the Amalekites, they are a continual, a 
habitual thorn in the side of God's people. So God said, I've had enough. Go and wipe them out. Now notice, very, very important to notice this, the war against these Amalekites is not a war of conquest. It is a war of justice. Saul was not to get rich from this war. Saul was not to take prisoners from this war. Saul was not to use this war to expand his boundaries. God's purpose in using Saul and his armies in this instance was to execute justice against the Amalekites. Now, before we jump further into the text, I, I've got to pause, and I debated all week how to, because I, I, I've, I just want you, I have edited about three-fourths of this sermon. You're lucky that you're not here till 3 p.m. today, okay? There is so much that's taking place in this chapter, but I, I can't pass over what it says at the end of verse 3, because it creates a tension when we see God giving an order for to, to not spare anyone to take out both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and, and donkey. And there's a tension that's created by God issuing this command for annihilation. Now, the, the, the short answer to that, that, we don't have time for the long answer, but the short answer of this is that justice is viewed differently. See, in the West, we view justice from a very individual perspective. Everyone is kind of on their own when it comes to to justice. If you mess up, you were held responsible. We don't hold your family responsible. In the East, not so much the, that way of thinking. In the East, the way of thinking, justice is more of a communal event. That is, if one person is guilty, the many people around them, the, they are also attached to that verdict of guilt. Now, which one is right? Which one is wrong? Yes. Uh, there is a sense in which both are correct, that, that yes, individually, we do stand before God, but certainly in community, the impact of our actions, it's felt by others. In a passage like this, where God delivers someone over to death because of the actions of a, another person, we're only seeing one side of the justice equation. We're not seeing God's mind behind all of this. At the end of the day, and it's not an answer that necessarily makes us, uh, uh, satisfies the tension, but at the end of the day, we have to realize that when God delivers someone over to death in the Bible, He's delivering them over to His justice, and no one is more just than God, neither is anyone as merciful as God. And so now, there's a command given execute, take out everyone. Jump down to verse 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as shore, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Uh-huh. And he devoted to destruction all the people, except Agag, with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs 
and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Now here's, it's very important. When it says, uh, when it tells us in verse 9 that Saul and the people spared Agag. In, in Hebrew, Hebrew language is written, it's very, the, the tenses are very important. And in Hebrew, that word spared, it has a singular tense. It is, it is a singular idea. That is to say, uh, it's, even though it says Saul and the people, plural, that it is Saul who's making this call. Saul is the one who single-handedly, individually, makes this decision to not spare Agag and also to take some of the things that God said to destroy to think, ah, oh, we're going to keep that for ourselves. The people were consenting, but it was Saul who made the decision. Verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. Well, it didn't take long for that to not work out, did it? For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. God said, I regret this. I, I feel sadness over this. Now, God doesn't have regrets like we do. You know, if I could take back something I said, or if I could make a different or better choice. God does, however, feel sadness or regret for our sake because of decisions that we make. And look at what Saul does in verse 12. It tells us that Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Caramel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Saul got everybody together and Saul said, all right, let's go toward a certain place and let's pick up all these rocks, let's pick up all these stones and let's put them together and let's build a monument and put a sign on it that says Saul rocks. Because <laughs> they're rocks, Saul rocks. For the rest of you who don't have a sense of humor, that's going to be funny in about two hours, all right? And Saul creates this monument for himself. Saul is saying, it's all about me. Verse 13, and Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Oh, well, Samuel, I did everything. We devoted to destruction everything. And uh, Samuel says, okay, well, if all the sheep are dead, why do I hear them? If, if everything's been destroyed, why can I still smell the animals around here? See, an amazing thing, an insane moment. There are evidences of disobedience all around Saul, yet he portrays a spirit of obedience about himself. He's saying, I'm doing what God wants. What a disconnect there is between reality, the real reality, and Saul's reality. But don't we do the same thing in our lives? Don't we repeat his? 
is folly. Don't we sit in church some Sundays like all is right with God while there are evidences of disobedience all around our lives? See, here's a very important truth as we move through this text. Every single one of us will get caught up in sin. We will all become hypocrites at one time or another. I beg of you, if you ever find a perfect church, do not join in it. You will ruin it. <laughs> we all have these sinful tendencies. We all are, we all become hypocrites from time to time. It's what you do after the Spirit of God confronts you with your sin that is of life and death importance. And Saul has been confronted with his sin. What is this bleeding of the sheep that I hear? And Saul goes down a path from which it's very difficult to return. And we can go down that same path. Look at what he says in verse 15. Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Ah, oh, look at Saul. He might have, may have not been born a politician, but when he became king, he became a politician very quickly. And Saul said, well, you know, the people brought all the, remember back in verse 9, that verb that says it is spared, that's singular, that Saul, he's the one who made the decision, but now he's blaming all of the people. He even claims that what's been done has been done for God's sake, for some sacrifice. He is blame shifting. He is justifying. He's saying, that's not that bad what's happened. Verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And Saul said to Samuel, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. Saul was nothing, and God made him everything. But now Saul is after one thing. He's after a name, but it's not God's name. It's his own name. He's after a kingdom, but it's not God's kingdom. The kingdom Saul is pursuing is his own kingdom. There is a glory Saul is seeking, but it's not God's glory. It is his own glory. What God did for Saul, who God is for Saul, wasn't enough for Saul. And so here Saul is the king who is now chasing a crown greater than the one God gave him. And isn't that the way it goes in our lives? We think, if I just have this, then I will be happy. And we have that, and we're not happy. And we always want more until we find God, because that's when we find, when we find God, that's when we discover we have found enough. But Saul's not there. Verse 18 tells us that the Lord, this is still Samuel speaking to Saul, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go to vote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? 
Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? That word pounce, it has the idea of greed. He was greedy for it. He craved to have a reputation as the king of all kings. Verse 20 says that Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. I've done 98% of what God has told me to do, therefore I'm obeying. And after all, that old sorry sucker that I sit on the pew with every Sunday, he only does 80% and I do 98. Am I meddling yet? And Saul began to say, well, uh, my disobedience, okay, let's call it disobedience. It's not that bad compared to what I see around me. Verse 22, Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Last week we said when the people demanded a king, God said, you're rejecting me, and now God has rejected this king that they have chosen. And man, verse 22 throws at us a question right in our face. Is God as excited about your token offering to him as he would be by your simple obedience to him? You see, above all else, God does not need your money. God does not need your talent. God was God before you got here. He'll be God after you're gone. God doesn't need you to be God, for him to be God. You add nothing to his God status. And the reason the question is asked is to let us know that above all else, God wants not our performance. God wants a surrendered heart. God wants a willingness to follow him wherever he tells us to go. God wants a willingness for us to say, how much do you want me to give God? And then I will give it. It's not that what we give makes God God. It's that our surrender to give is what honors him and brings him glory. Some of us are, are, are giving God less than all, and, and that doesn't bother you. But I want you to see what God said. He said that rebellion is as the sin of divination. That is, when you choose to not give everything to God, that's just like worshiping Satan, the sin of divination. Think about that the next time you willfully choose to disobey God. God says, you're just, just like you're bowing down to, to the devil himself. Because Satan's rule is, I'm going to do it my way. I will do things the way I want to do it. And when we adopt that mentality, are we not falling at his feet? Are we not following his example? 
And so verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, Oh, I've sinned, for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now you read that verse, you go, okay, Saul has come to his senses. Saul is offering repentance. It looks like repentance on the outside, but it is not repentance on the inside. It's all for show, and I'll show you why in just a second. But you see, Saul is going to repeat the same mistake constantly in his life. And repentance means that you change. But I, I, I know, I, I conclude he did not repent because of what verse 25 says. Saul's still speaking. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Now what he's talking about here, this desire to bow before the Lord, that there, Saul's referring to this big uh, uh, offering, this national offering of thanksgiving that the people would collectively give before God and they would sacrifice to God because of their victory. It'd be a big ceremony. The problem is, Saul cannot offer the sacrifice. He's not the priest. Only Samuel can offer the sacrifice. If Samuel boycotts the celebration, if Samuel doesn't attend, Saul loses major credibility. Saul is not worried about repenting before God. Saul is worried about his image. And Saul thinks, if I can give a face of repentance, if people think I'm repenting, and if I can get Samuel to go with me, then everybody's going to think how good a king I am. See what he says down in verse 30, that uh, uh, Saul says, I've sinned, yet honor me now. And your repentance doesn't honor you. Your repentance honors God. But Saul says, honor me now before the elders of my people and, and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Saul is worried about losing face. He's still concerned with how he looks in front of other people. Verse 26, Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Booyah is what he said in Hebrew. <laughs> now this person who's better than you is going to be, guess who? King David. And King David's not a perfect man. But King David does know how to repent. He does know how to focus on the kingdom of God. Skip down to verse 32. And Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. <laughs> and Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag's kind of, you know, here he is. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said to Agag, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. That's Booyal number two. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. 
See, Samuel, that's what Samuel was supposed to do. Samuel failed to obey God. Excuse me, Saul failed to obey God, whereas Samuel was faithful. Now, how, what does that have to do with our lives today? Let me call your attention to a couple of things that I think are very important as we dissect obedience in the next five, six, seven, ten, twenty, thirty minutes, okay? First is this. I need you to know, God wants, I believe, us to know this morning, that anything less than full and immediate obedience is disobedience. See, disobedience is any kind of partial, conditioned, or conditional, or delayed obedience. You see, when, when, when we put partial obedience in an equation, that's, that's us saying, I'm not going to do exactly what God says, but when I don't do what God says in this area, I'll try to make up for it in this other area. That's partial obedience, but that is full disobedience. Or it might be a conditional obedience we offer to God. God, I will do what you <clears throat> have asked me to do if X, Y, and Z occur. That's conditional obedience, but it is full disobedience. Or how about delayed obedience where we will tell God, I'll follow your commands tomorrow. I'll do what you're calling me to do, but first let me do this in my life. Let me delay my obedience and all of those are examples of full disobedience. Look, this is where you know how I feel about religion. I can't, I wouldn't walk across the street in my neighborhood to give somebody religion, but I would go to the other side of the world to get the gospel to somebody. I despise religion, and here is one of the many reasons why. This is where religion thrives. Religion covers our rebellion with rituals. And it makes us think that if we go through the motions, that it's repentance. And religion substitutes ceremony for surrender. It, it thrives in this area of disobedience. Anything less than full and immediate obedience is disobedience. But secondly, to understand this, that we're all disobedient, but, but disobedient, but here's the good news. The only cure for disobedience is the gospel. Samuel says to God, or says to, uh, to Saul, Samuel says to Saul, you were nothing, and when you were nothing, God made you a king. God says to us, when you were a sinner, I came to earth and I died for you. And listen, friend, when we understand the gospel, when we understand the truth that the God of this universe sacrificed himself for us because of his love for us, and that when we understand that he is our possession for eternity, when that begins to take root in our minds and our hearts, we are liberated from the need to be great. Listen, I don't have to be great because my God is. 
I don't have to worry about making a platform for my name. I don't have to worry about increasing my Facebook friend list. I don't have to worry about getting people to watch me on TikTok. I don't have to worry about increasing my platform on Twitter. I don't have to worry about any of that junk because God's name is powerful, not mine. Jonathan Russell gets nobody into heaven. Only Jesus can do that. So who do I think I am to make my name great? Well, there's going to come a day that my name is forgotten, but his name never is. Well, preacher, how can I know that I have God's approval? How can I know that I've surrendered enough? How can I know that I've obeyed enough? That is the message of the gospel for you. Christ perfectly surrendered himself and perfectly obeyed for you. He was then given your rejection and your punishment. Christ lived the life of obedience, but he suffered the penalty of disobedience in our place. And because because he took our rejection, we can have his acceptance. And when we grasp this reality, we realize that we don't need monuments. We don't need approval. It breaks the power of disobedience in our lives. Look, I like to be liked, and I hope you like me. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you like me or not, because God's already can put his approval on me. God's already placed his hand of grace upon my life. And that leads me to number three. Confronting our disobedience, which we have to confront it today, gives us two choices. We can rationalize it, or we can repent of it. When we're confronted with disobedience, we are tempted to do as Saul did. That is to offer a narrative of excuses. Do not go down that path. We all have sin. It's what you do after you know you have sin that is of crucial importance. Do not rationalize your disobedience. Repent. Don't rationalize why you're telling God no. Just repent of telling God no. And then put your yes on the table to whatever God calls you to do. God this morning does not want to hear your rationalizations. He wants to receive your repentance. God this morning does not want your sacrifices unless you also give him submission. You see, this text is more than just a story. It is an invitation you and I, we are Saul. When we were nothing, God made us something. When you were a rebel, God gave his life for you. Will you this morning receive in your life what Saul would not receive? Last week I asked you to make a decision to receive something that Israel did not receive. And today I want you to consider receiving something that Saul would not receive. That invitation for you this morning is to know God. God, to rest your soul in God, to obey God in full surrender. Will you make the choice today that Saul did not make? 
And that's my question I'll leave you with. Will you make the choice today to surrender everything to Jesus? For some of you here this morning, that's going to mean that you start your surrender at the very beginning. It means you're going to put your sin on the table. Because there's never been a time in your life when you surrendered your sin to God. There's never been a time in your life when you confessed your sin to God and you asked Him to be your Lord and Savior. And so today, the choice you are faced with is will you offer to God your sin so you can receive His salvation? Martin Luther called that the great exchange. We give God sin, He gives us grace and salvation. If that's the choice you need to make today, then right where you are, you can pray and ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. You can repent of your sin like Saul would not do. You can do. And you can find everlasting life. And in a, in a few minutes when we sing, and if you've got questions about that, we're going to make ourselves available to you to answer those questions and talk about that uh, with you and, and help you make or consider the next step that you need to make. But maybe you've made that choice. Let me ask you this. What have you not put on the table before God and said, God, this is yours? Where in your life have you yet to say yes to God without conditions? Is there something in your life in which you've told God, I know I need to surrender this part, and, and I might do this later. Or if I could just have this first, that's exactly what Saul did. And the problem with delayed or conditional obedience is that it never becomes God-honoring obedience. Put your yes on the table to whatever God is calling you to do. Would you bow with me right where you are? I'm going to pray. After I pray, we're going to stand. We're going to sing. I'm simply asking you to do what God is placing on your heart to do, to surrender to Him what you're holding back, to let go of that area of disobedience. I don't know what it is. I don't care what it is in your life. All I want you to do is to give that disobedience to God and walk out of here today fully following Him. Father God, I thank You that Jesus was fully obedient, that He even though he faced such difficulty, even though he faced such spiritual pressure, he prayed, not his will, but yours be done. Perfect obedience. Father, we falter in that. We fail in that. But you're a God of grace who extends to us opportunity after opportunity to move our disobedience to obedience. And today, we have that opportunity right now. Lord, I don't know what any person in this room, what decision they need to make. But I simply pray that we would say yes 
to whatever you're putting upon our hearts today. In Christ's name, amen.